Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayholt LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Glayholt LLP podcast, Building Insight. My name is Jane Athwani and I'm an associate at Glayholt LLP. We're here today with Duncan Glayholt and Bruce Reynolds to talk about collaborative settlement. Bruce and Duncan are two of the preeminent construction lawyers in Ontario, in Canada, and globally. In addition, they've both been named by Who's Who Legal in its Canada edition as among the top five leading practitioners of construction law in the country. Duncan and Bruce are also extremely well published internationally in the field of construction and dispute resolution. Duncan and Bruce have recently published an article on the topic of today's discussion. Their article called The Collaborative Settlement of Construction Disputes was published in the American Journal of Construction, Arbitration, and ADR in Volume 1, Number 2 in 2017. And you're all invited to look that up for an in-depth and very thought-through discussion of the Collaborative Settlement of Construction Disputes. It's our privilege to speak with them today on the topic of Collaborative Settlement. The first question I'd like to ask is understanding a little bit about collaborative settlement. What is the traditional model of settlement in litigation, and how does collaborative settlement differ from it? Duncan, maybe we can start with you. Thank you, Jay. I think there are some uh, fundamental and significant differences between the traditional model of settlement in litigation and collaborative settlement, as Bruce and I have uh, described it in, a, in an article we've written. To contrast the two, I would say this. Uh, the traditional model of litigation and the traditional model of settlement in litigation is essentially adversarial. Uh, The philosophical background uh, of that settlement, as we described in our article, is Aristotelian. Uh, It's very Western. It's disrespectful of the opposition. It tends to regard the construction industry as a collection of competing individual interests. And that is the approach that traditional litigation brings to settlement. It pursues, in my view, short-term goals, and it's a system designed to strengthen individual values. By way of contrast, as Bruce and I have conceived of it, collaborative settlement is essentially non-adversarial. It's a much more Eastern uh, concept, uh, almost a Confucian concept. It's a concept that would immediately be attractive to uh, a people raised in a different uh, litigation culture. It is inherently respectful of the opposition. It treats the construction industry as an organic whole, a community. It pursues long-term goals, not short-term goals. And collaborative settlement, Jay, is a system that is designed to and strengthens community values in the construction industry. Traditionally, we settle by divesting a rights-based dispute to agent, to agents. The principals in a dispute hire lawyers uh, as agents and divest ownership of the dispute to them. As Bruce and I see collaboration, it's very different. Ownership of the dispute is retained by the principals. They never divest it. And their engagement in the settlement over the short period of time that collaboration takes place is active and continuous. Well, I agree entirely with uh, Duncan's description of collaborative settlement and its fundamental characteristics. Cycling back to your question for a moment, it's absolutely correct to say that the traditional form of negotiation 
that uh, we've encountered over the years within the construction industry is positional in nature. Uh, one might even characterize it as a zero-sum equation. Parenthetically, it's also destructive of relationships and characterized by gamesmanship. In contrast, the collaborative settlement of disputes as we developed it in a particular case is characterized by disclosure, disclosure, and more disclosure in order to generate a fact pattern which is as complete as possible, subject to privilege, of course, but a fact pattern which is shared between the parties and exists in as neutral a context as possible. Because I think it's fair to say that we shared the experience over the years of positional negotiations failing in part because the decision makers on the client team were in love with their own narrative, had not taken on board the actual facts of the matter. And of course, as we all know, the true fact pattern, or to put it somewhat differently, the provable fact pattern, drives the legal analysis. So if you're a client team leader and a decider in terms of the acceptability of a settlement, and you're playing a hand that is partial and distorted in regards to the facts, then your judgment will be partial and distorted in terms of what should constitute an acceptable settlement offer. So one of the key building blocks which we utilized was a very robust exchange of documents and the best recollections of key witnesses in order to try and share the true provable fact pattern. So I, so I would suggest that was a foundational element of the process that we developed. Secondly, and again echoing Duncan, we realized that the clients were the owners of the disagreement and needed to be the owners of the ultimate decision and direct participants in the process. So part of the arrangement that we implemented, which took place over a very tight time frame, given the magnitude of the dispute, was a commitment from both clients to respond to requests that we might make of them for documents and access to witnesses on a lightning-fast uh, turnaround. And this generated direct client engagement in the process to a degree that might be analogous to the client's level of involvement uh, in, in the period leading up to the commencement of a trial. So we engaged people's attention. And the third piece of, of the process were articulations based on the shared fact pattern of the analysis and legal conclusions on either side of the dispute, which were shared. Not that the advice that uh, Duncan was giving to his client or I was giving to my client uh, in a solicitor-client context um, was shared, in as much as that's clearly subject to privilege, but the assessments were shared. So Duncan's view of the case was made available to me, and vice versa, and we then turned the face-to-face -face negotiation 
the effort to actually take the foundational work and translate it into a settlement over to the senior members of the client teams who met without counsel uh, and settled the case. So I've probably left out some of the finer points of, of the process that we developed, but uh, in my mind, at least, those were the, the, the main moving parts. And I think it was uh, quite a fascinating exercise in process design. Thanks very much for that, Duncan and Bruce. Those were fascinating answers. And uh, Bruce, I'm wondering if I can pick up a little bit on on the process that you were describing, which uh, involves a, a somewhat different structure to uh, the kind of settlement discussions that would typically take place in litigation. Uh, I'm wondering how that affects what a mediator needs to do to facilitate a collaborative settlement. How does under a collaborative settlement model, a mediator's role differ from the role that he or she might play in a more traditional type of settlement. Duncan, maybe you can take a a shot at this first, and then we'll turn it back over to Bruce. Well, Jay, uh, you've touched on a very important point. There is no mediator in a collaborative settlement. So one of the key differences is that there is no mediator in a collaborative settlement. You do not use a third party. Just to pick up on what Bruce said, there are essentially five steps in a collaboration, none of which require a third party to be involved. The parties and lawyers do this themselves. Step one is the collaboration agreement, which uh, Bruce and I were able to uh, uh, work on and agree, and my time periods start from there. The collaboration agreement uh, provides for a time-limited process. Uh, We would like to discuss at some point this morning a disqualification provision, and it sets uh, broad preset calendar dates for the following four steps. Step two was exactly what Bruce described. It was an intensive but importantly time-limited interactive period of fact-gathering. Bruce and I were on the phone to each other. I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say daily. Over a period uh, of 30 to 45 days, we traveled to the client's office. We met witnesses. We gathered documents. As Bruce had questions about my case, he would ask me to satisfy and answer his questions. And similarly, I would ask those questions of Bruce, and we uh, cooperated um, during that step. Step three, again, Bruce described it was lawyer-to-lawyer meetings without clients present. We met at my office. We met at Bruce's office, and these were preset uh, dates. We had a new rhetorical goal, and this, Jay, like the absence of a mediator, is fundamental to collaboration. Instead of either of us trying to persuade the other about our own case, each of us took on the task of explaining the other side's case. So I had to explain to Bruce the theory, the facts, the evidence, and the right and reason of his case so that he finally said to me, Duncan, you've got it. Bruce then explained my case to me, going over all the facts and all the law, until I said finally, Bruce, you've got it. That's my, that's my essential case. A very different rhetorical goal. We had hoped to make uh, a common report to clients, but time did not permit. In an ideal collaboration, uh, Bruce and I would have prepared a common uh, report to the client. Step four were private lawyer-to-client meetings. Bruce with his client, me with mine. And uh, we were able then to say to the client when we met with them that we were accurately and reliably conveying the other side's case to our client. And then again, just as Bruce has said, step five were business-to-business meetings where we had no part. Uh, The interests of the client uh, were well known to the client. They had a reliable common set of uh, facts and a common understanding tested by us, and they were able to uh, settle the case. 
and then I'll, I'll finish if I can, Jay, uh, with this. The traditional model uh, of mediation is that you uh, build your own case and you pull down the other side's case. Uh, you speak, you write, you bargain positionally, and then you hire a mediator to bring you back to the world of business interests. The collaborative model that we uh, worked out is very different. The whole point of the collaborative model is to demonstrate uh, a genuine and reliable understanding of the opponent's case, to validate that understanding with the other lawyer, and to create common, non-positional messaging to your client and to the other side. The lawyer-to-lawyer meetings were quite fascinating. I would analogize it to finding yourself in the position of defending someone else's thesis. And it was an essential part of this disclosure and information exchange phase. But it was particularly powerful for the reason that uh, Duncan articulates, because in order to put your opponent's case, you need to thoroughly process it in your own mind. When you think of the mediation process, as Duncan has correctly described it, the mediation memoranda that we customarily draft and receive are positional documents. The mediator, a good mediator, will, through the process of the mediation, create an environment where each of the parties is forced to process the other party's case in order to arrive at a point where they can recognize a good settlement when it becomes available. By extracting the mediator from our collaborative settlement process, we had to replace it with a step in the process that would replicate the requirement to take on board your opponent's case in a meaningful way, which brings you beyond, necessarily and inevitably brings you beyond your love affair with your own narrative causes you to think about the whole cake and not just your half of the cake. It's essential, I think Duncan would agree, in bringing the client along with you on that journey so that this psychological process of taking on board the reality of the opponent's case occurs in an iterative fashion all of which is directed towards allowing the decision makers on each of the client teams to be able to come together and settle the case in an intelligent way. So the process that we developed is structured with a view to allowing the clients, I would say the lawyers and the clients, to travel the road of taking on board and responsibly processing all aspects of the case. Thanks very much, Bruce and Duncan. I'd like to ask you about where collaborative settlement falls on the dis spectrum of dispute resolution. That spectrum being, on the one end, a purely transactional resolution of a dispute, and on the other end, a restorative or transformative repair to the relationship between the parties. Where does collaborative settlement take the parties? Does it necessarily take you to the more transformative or restorative end, or is that is that something that that outcome independent of the process of collaborative settlement that you've both described to me? 
Jay, that's a big and very complex question. I think that um, collaboration doesn't fit neatly into the spectrum that, you, that you've described. The rhetorical goal of uh, collaboration is not uh, transformational as such. It is a non-adversarial model, and the conventional models of dispute resolution all fit neatly as they must uh, into an inherently adversarial system. So the system of, that uh, supports collaboration is, is fundamentally and, and philosophically different. But it, it does uh, overlap in some, to some extent. I, I see collaboration uh, as uh, an, an exercise uh, in value creation. Uh, it's an exercise in value creation. We'll talk more about this perhaps. But it gets the parties to what I have called the moment of repose that legal counsel feel only on the last day of a major trial or arbitration, when all the evidence is in, and you've been forced to listen to the other side's case for days or weeks, and here your witnesses tested and test the other side's witnesses. And you achieve in that, I do, that hour or moment of repose, finally, a complete understanding of the case. Collaboration gets you there in a summary fashion uh, sooner. So in a sense, it's a, it's a value creator, not a value distributor. I also believe that in an adversarial world, in a positional bargaining world, dysfunction, the demonizing of an opponent, the, de the, the reactive devaluation of statements made by an opponent degrades relationships. It's individually focused. It's a power structure. And I think that it's dysfunctional. It's, I see it as dysfunctional in a business context. You have to watch dysfunction because it becomes normalized. People that, uh, uh, that uh, demonize the opponent get in the habit of doing that, and that's antithetical to the business community. You look at any of the closed-ended business communities that Bruce and I and, and you and others deal with every day. Look at the oil and gas industry. Look at power generation. Uh, look at EPC contracting. Look at the international construction market. This is not a series of isolated, interconnected, self-dealing actors. This is a business community, and community values are enhanced by collaboration, not by positional uh, bargaining. Secondly, the use of one's intellect. If the use of one's intellect is simply aggressively to destroy perhaps even the worthy points made by another side, what a waste of intellect. Isn't it better to use one's learning, one's experience, to actually understand your opponent, to empathize and understand and communicate that to a party? Uh, that's my view. As a matter of principle, once again, I'm entirely in agreement uh, with Duncan. I think that there are bad actors within those communities. I would suggest that they are the exception to the rule. And there are also good people who sometimes find themselves in a position where it's necessary to take an adversarial position in order to protect the franchise. So I think within the context of considering whether to enter into a collaborative settlement process, it's necessary to exercise judgment in regards to whether the character of the opposing party is such that you're prepared to invest a certain degree of trust in them to participate in the collaborative settlement process in good faith. It may be that you come to the conclusion that the counterparty is not deserving of that trust. 
in which case you would choose a more adversarial form of dispute resolution, or you could conclude that although the counterparty is not morally defective, they're in a position where their interests are such that they're not able to participate in a way that is likely to produce a positive outcome. And again, if that's the conclusion, you would not adopt the collaborative settlement process. I quite agree with um, Bruce's remarks. And this, Jay introduces the idea of a disqualification provision. Defection to positional bargaining is a risk that lawyers run and clients run in engaging in a collaborative process. For uh, Bruce and me, when we did this, uh, this was not a risk that we ran because we knew each other uh, and we knew that there was little, if any, risk of defection to positional bargaining. But for the market, for people who are considering this, certainly in the family law context, as collaboration has become uh, known in the United States, particularly and in Canada, uh, parties include a disqualification provision. So they enter into a limited scope retainer with a lawyer to conduct the collaborative process. The disqualification provision provides that if either counsel defects to positional bargaining or adversarial proceedings during the course of the collaboration, the collaboration ends and both of those lawyers then become disqualified from representing the parties in the eventual adversarial adjudication. Now, this will be unpalatable to, uh, in a commercial context, uh, in a family law context, it's well accepted in a commercial context where the investment in adversarial process uh, can be in the millions, if not tens of millions of dollars, that would be unpalatable uh, to many law firms. So collaboration could be done without it, but uh, it is the the choice of parties to go to collaboration uh, without a disqualification provision would considerably reduce uh, the number of people, I think, that would or could take advantage of collaboration. With the disqualification provision, there's at least a check and balance. Duncan and I have debated over the years... I think it's fair to say quite vigorously debated the concept of the disqualification provision. And I think that on a philosophical level, at a level of principle, uh, Duncan's view in regards to the disqualification provision is preferable and logically consistent with endeavoring to maximize the likelihood of success of the collaborative settlement process. The source of the debate is my view that the relationship that allows for the collaborative settlement agreement to arise and for the process to proceed, as it did in our case, is foundational. And that if you take your decision as to whether to enter into the process wisely in choosing your counterparty, then it should not be necessary to have a disqualification provision. I may be somewhat more naive than Duncan in this regard. Thanks, Duncan and Bruce, for those answers. And I want to move on to the next question, which is what parties need to bring to the table to make a collaborative settlement possible? I think you've already described some of what parties need to bring to the table, but I'm wondering if you might be able to synthesize what the essential characteristics of what you think parties need to be able to 
to bring to the table to make collaborative settlement possible? So there are several levels to the answer to that question, uh, and I do not intend to be glib in, in answering the, the highest level. Uh, the traditional model, uh, if, if you don't bring a knife to a gunfight, as the saying goes. So the traditional model is gladiatorial. You have to bring money, time, and internal resources to the battlefield and hope to win. In collaboration, it's different. I think Bruce again put his finger right on it. You have to bring the willingness to communicate, the willingness to invest in a process that is uh, new uh, and uh, interesting and effective. Uh, that's what you have to bring to the table. Uh, the uh, time periods are very short, and you would have gathered that from our earlier discussion. Uh, roughly 60 to 100 days, I would estimate, to complete a cycle. In the case that Bruce and I worked on, uh, uh, that we describe in our article at least, it was, uh, I think, just a little more than 90 days, more like 100 or, or perhaps 120 days in that case. Uh, it can be expensive. Uh, the fact-gathering stage uh, is not uh, uh, insignificant. Uh, it requires full-time and attention, uh, in our case, by um, a group of lawyers and support staff. It required witnesses to travel. It required document management support. So it is uh, a considerable investment uh, of time. So I think these are the things that uh, you would need to uh, bring to the table. I cannot underscore uh, sufficiently uh, the exercise of will involved here. It goes back to remarks Bruce made about cases that some of them need to be litigated and some of them are susceptible to settlement, uh, indeed collaborative settlement. What you're looking for, I think, in an institutional environment uh, is a construction economy where there are repeat interactions expected. I think that's another thing that's very important. This point relates back to your earlier question, Jay, about... Uh where on the spectrum of dispute resolution collaborative settlement lies in regards to empowering the continuation of the relationship between the parties to the dispute. The collaborative settlement process that was the first example of the method that Duncan and I developed involved a utility for which Duncan acted and a contractor my client, who did anticipate and hope for a future relationship. At the same time, Duncan's client functioned within an environment where significant uh, dispute resolution needed to be auditable, it needed to be reported, and it needed to be approved by the applicable regulatory authorities. And so it was particularly important that the outcome of the collaborative uh, process that we put in place uh, met ultimately with that uh, regulatory approval. Therefore, in addition to bringing the matter to a mutually disagreeable outcome and allowing the relationship between the two main actors to continue successfully, the process ultimately received a regulatory imprimatur as constituting a credible dispute resolution process. And I think, Duncan, that was particularly important to both of us. Duncan, I'm wondering if you can describe for us, in your view, what the key obstacles are to collaborative settlement as a more common mode of dispute resolution. And what does the justice system need to do in order to facilitate 
collaborative settlement. All right. Thank you, Jay. Um, at the risk of resorting to lists, let me list a few um, obstacles that I think face the development of collaborative settlement, again, as Bruce and I uh, have developed it in the article you referred to. First, uh, it's an, an odd and unfamiliar concept for adversarial trained lawyers. The first reaction one, one hears from a group when you speak to them about this, especially if the group contains adversarially trained lawyers, is uh, a, sort of a questioning, how could this ever work? Uh, well, in fact, it does. So the fact that it's odd and unfamiliar is the first obstacle. Uh, flowing from that, the second obstacle, which Bruce and I have tried very hard to remedy, is the lack of academic and statistical credentials to support the recommendation of a collaborative settlement process to a sophisticated uh, and often uh, often uh, uh, public uh, a client. Uh, we've tried to remedy that with our article. Uh, the third obstacle uh, I think would be obvious to the uh, audience of, of this podcast is that there's a very lean market uh, right now for people who have a collaborative law skill set in the construction law area. Uh, we, again, Bruce and I, uh, would like to remedy that. Uh, so I think education is going to be important. And finally, uh, in obstacles, Jay, uh, the current structure of the legal profession, certainly internationally, into uh, monolithic uh, law firms uh, does not assist uh, in collaboration because of the disqualification provision that I've asked uh, or I've mentioned uh, uh, earlier. The disqualification provision is uh, antithetical to the business model of most large law firms. So collaboration and collaborative lawyering under limited scope retainers may indeed be something uh, for uh, sole practitioners or those who are already making the move to arbitration or mediation. But the second part of your question, I really asked, what can the justice system, the legal profession do to encourage collaborative uh, lawyering in the construction sector. Uh, and I would uh, quote our Chief Justice Richard Wagner in saying that what is needed um, uh, from both the profession and judicially is, is courage and creativity, as he put it. Uh, the courage to, uh, to uh, attempt uh, uh, new models of dispute resolution and creativity in shaping those models. Uh, I would also think that the uh, uh, judicial recognition of differences between transactional and relational contracts is important because collaboration, I think, uh, uh, is ideally suited to genuinely relational contracts. And finally, uh, limited scope retainers have, uh, have obtained uh, much uh, consideration in the United States, and I think we're going to need the law societies here to uh, recognize the uh, use of uh, limited scope retainers. Thanks very much, Duncan. Bruce, I'd like to close with you. Could you tell us what is the one thing that a party considering using a collaborative settlement process needs to consider? Well, to misquote a famous American dispute resolution expert, a party considering the appropriate method of dispute resolution should do their best to fit the fix to the fuss. So to put that slightly differently, there's a spectrum of dispute resolution methods. And although Duncan and I are particularly interested in collaborative dispute resolution, we're both quite vocal advocates of adjudication. So fitting the fix to the fuss is very much an underlying principle in the way that uh, both, of us, both of us approach dispute resolution. When you're 
engaged in a dispute with a party who meets the essential criteria, the threshold criteria, which is a sufficient degree of trustworthiness, then this particular method of dispute resolution is an available avenue to attempt to resolve your dispute. Once you've passed that threshold, then it's necessary for both parties to accept that in the endeavor to develop a collectively generated fact pattern, as we've both discussed earlier, there will not be a perfect outcome. In this type of process, you will not achieve the extent of discovery that you can achieve, with great effort, I would add parenthetically, in a fully regulated adversarial dispute resolution environment, such as would pertain under the rules of civil procedure. However, in my experience, this is acceptable from the perspective of a senior business person who will typically operate on the 80% solution thesis because you will achieve, based on our experience, and we have done this more than once, you will achieve better than an 80% outcome in terms of disclosure. The nagging concern in the back of the adversarial advocate's mind is that that will not allow them to find the smoking gun. However, in my experience, there is no smoking gun. And I was present at uh, a conference in Australia a number of years ago where a room full of 200 construction dispute resolution experts were canvassed as to whether any of them had ever encountered the smoking gun. Out of approximately 200 attendees, one person put up their hand. They were promptly cross-examined, and it was collectively agreed that what they thought was a smoking gun had not been a smoking gun. So, while I don't contest the theoretical proposition that in certain fact patterns there is a smoking gun, I personally haven't encountered one, and therefore you need, in order to engage in this process, to accept that you're going to get shall we say, 80% of a loaf in terms of disclosure. Having said that, and as all dispute resolution experts know, once you have a significant degree of documentary disclosure, the documents interrelate to such an extent that it is normally possible to suss out where your opponent has suppressed a document. So you actually... I think based on the experience that we have shared in regards to this type of dispute resolution, we'll get 80% disclosure plus you will be able to reach reasonable conclusions in regards to that which has not been disclosed. In business terms, if this degree of disclosure is viewed as reasonable, then the process will work, as it has worked for uh, our clients more than once in the past. Bruce and Duncan, I want to thank you both so much for joining us today for our Building Insight podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. 
fascinating to get your insights on this model of dispute resolution. And we thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.